city of Dubai uh, hit the news earlier this year as the population of that city uh, grew and it breached the two million barrier. Two million. Now, for us, living as we do in London in a much uh, larger city, that might not seem like all that big a deal. It might not seem particularly newsworthy. But when we consider that just a few decades ago, uh, the population of Dubai was kind of minuscule. You know, just a few decades ago, we're talking about 30 or 40,000 people. When we consider that, then we begin to see uh, what all the fuss was about. And at the time of that marker being broken, the 2 million mark, all the news stories and all the websites about it, they all had graphs and pictures and charts that kind of documented this substantial demographic explosion. And that is the sort of thing we've got in front of us this morning in Genesis chapter 10, isn't it? Because these verses, what are they? They're really a a chart or an account. What we've got is kind of a table of dramatic population growth. We've got the expansion of the population in the immediate aftermath of the flood... We've got the expansion of the population that comes from just a few people. Just a cluster of people. From Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So that is what we're dealing with here in Genesis chapter 10. Okay, let's consider then a few points from it. And I want us to think about this first thing. This is our first point. Let's consider here the entirety of the earth before God. You got it? The entirety of the earth before God. Okay. So this is a list of nations and people groups uh, that descends from Shem, Ham and Japheth. We get it. Okay. But one of the first things that we've got to understand about this list is that it is not an exhaustive list. You see what I mean? This is not every single name of every single one of Noah's descendants. It's not exhaustive. Instead, all we see is more of a illustrative list. No, better word than that. It's more of a representative list. You see, the list in Genesis 10 does stand for all the people of the earth. But it does so by mentioning only those people that were known to the people of God. Now, you might ask, how do we know that? How do we know that this list in Genesis 10 represents the entirety of the world's population? How do we know that? Two things, okay? Ready for them? First one. We see it from the number of names that are recorded here. Okay? Sounds a bit odd, I grant you. But we see it from the number of names. 
Now, I know, as well as any of you here, that that, uh, you can kind of do anything with statistics. Statistics are kind of a dangerous thing. But there is here, in this portion of Scripture, a very kind of telling or a very helpful statistic. Because as we've already seen in the book of Genesis, and especially in the creation account in Genesis 1, multiples of seven are very significant in Scripture. And in Genesis 10, when you add up all the names that we've got here, what do we get? All these names, rather unusual names, and the people groups, you add them all up, what do you get? We get 70 names populating the earth. Now, why is that important? Because in Scripture, seven is the number of completion. In Scripture, time and time again, seven is the number of totality. These 70 names that we've got here, they stand for the total earth. It's the whole earth here. The world is one before the Lord. So that's the first thing to note. The second thing to note is the Toledot. Now, can you remember what the Toledot is? The Toledot is that phrase that's repeated time and time again through Genesis. You know that phrase that marks the beginning of a new section? You know, we've read through parts of Genesis and we're reading through it together as a congregation and we get to either these are the generations of or we get to this is the account of. What do we know? We know that we are moving into a new section of Scripture. And what do you see in verse 1? Have a look. What do you see in verse 1? You see the Toledot. It says, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Crucially, and this is the important thing, this new section is the last of the sections that deals with God's relationship to the whole earth. You see, from now on, into the next section, about halfway through uh, chapter 11, the focus changes. The focus from that point onwards isn't God's relationship with all of mankind. In the next section, it narrows and it becomes God's relationship with one particular family, the family of Abraham. So again, just like with the number of names, the Toledot, it shows us that in Genesis 10, the entirety of the earth is the focus. The world is one before the Lord. Okay. Fine. What does that mean for us this morning? Well, folks, in recording this list, God 
not only demonstrates his awareness of all the people of the earth, he also demonstrates the love that he has for them too. And I'll tell you why. This is not just a sort of statistic that we've got here. You know, this list is not just a dry and, and boring and meaningless genealogy. See, it's a list of all the people who have received the blessing of God's covenant with Noah that we saw in the previous chapter. You see, it's not just a list of names. It's a list of people God loves and has blessed with preservation and blessed with care. So it's not just about numbers. It's not just about names. It's not boring. It's about God's love for people. And that underlines something very important for you and me. Because that means that we should have an international missionary focus. An international missionary focus. How? Well, you see, if if, if God cares for the totality of the earth, for all the population of the world, as we see that he does here, then so too should we, shouldn't we? If God cares for the population of the world, then so should his people. You know, we should have Genuinely, folks, we should have a heart for evangelism. You know, the people of God, we should have a view of evangelism that isn't just about the sort of immediate vicinity, that's not just about the people in your street, it's not just about the people you work with, not just about the people around about the church. It should be a view of evangelism that mirrors the biblical view of evangelism, a view that covers all four corners of the globe. Listen to Psalm 67. We're going to sing this later. Listen to this. May God make his face shine upon him. That all your ways may be known on the earth. That all your ways may be known among all nations. Our missionary zeal should spread to the very ends of the earth. Why? Because we see here... God loves people. The world is one before the Lord. And we see that even more particularly in this first list of names, don't we? I'm sure I don't need to highlight it. I'm sure that you noted that when I was struggling earlier on to read through that list of names. Believe me, it was a struggle. Um, You'll have noted that the list is broken up, or the chapter is broken up into three. We all saw that, didn't we? You've got the Japhites, and then the next column is the Hamites, and and then the Semites. Three lists. Well, think about the first list here. These Japhites. Who are those guys? Who are the Japhites? I'll tell you, these, these guys were the outsiders. Okay, these were the, 
the nations that were hardly known at all to the people of God. These were the guys, the Japhites, these were the ones that the people of God had very little, if any, contact with. Because we're we're told, aren't we, in verse 5, it says that the Japhites were maritime people. And that's not a great translation, maybe. But we get the idea. These were the people, the Japhites, that lived in coastal areas. These were the guys that occupied the coastal parts of the Med and the islands of the Mediterranean, from, you know, like Cyprus and Malta and right round to Spain. But you get the picture. These were the far-off guys. These were the sort of uh, foreign people. These were the people that were almost kind of like alien people to the people of God. But they are still what? They're still recorded. They still receive God's blessing in the covenant. Folks, we see from that that not only should we elevate our prayerful gaze from the immediate to the ends of the earth. But we should also have a particularly centered focus on unreached people groups. We should particularly prioritize those people we have no contact with, those who are without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you might say, that's fine to say, but how do we do that? How do we involve ourselves in reaching unreached people groups? Well, come on, let's use our imagination. There's, we live in the UK, there's lots and lots of things that we can do. I mean, we can support Bible translation work, can we not? You know, as a congregation, we can be really prayerful about the missionaries we know who are in dangerous and far off parts of the world. We can educate ourselves about the plight of the persecuted church. There's loads that we can do, there's loads that we should do to support international missions. And in some ways, folks, you just got to laugh, don't you? In some ways, you've just got to stand back and admire God's timing. Because here we are on Sunday, and we're in a passage of Scripture that speaks of the concern we should have for far-off unreached people groups and what's happening on Thursday God sends to us a missionary to speak about what? to speak about his work with far off unreached people groups friends I hope you see the point Genesis 10 It shows us our need to have an international missionary focus. Why? Because the world is out there and the world is one before the Lord.
Um, I'm sure you saw this on the news. But the BBC released a, a very interesting statistic, a weird statistic this week. It said that one quarter of British young people, I don't know if this is the case for the young people here, one quarter of British young people do not trust people of the Muslim faith. That was the statistic that was over a quarter. It says 28% of those questioned were either suspicious or scared of people of the Muslim faith. Now, so we turn to a second thing just now. That's the sort of thing that I want us to think about and consider. You know, should we, should Christians be scared of our supposed enemies? So we've seen the entirety of the earth before God. Let's now think about the evil of the earth before God. And for this We've seen the Japhites, the maritime people. Let's think about this next group, the Hamites. So what do we learn about them? Friends, what do we learn about the Hamites? Well, let me suggest two things that we learn. One, notice firstly that many of the enemies of God are recorded on this list of Hamites. Did you see that? Many of the enemies of God are recorded here. You know, lots of names that are going to appear later on in the Old Testament. You know, lots of names that are going to appear later on in Scripture and that are going to be involved in sort of opposing the people of Israel. A lot of those people appear for the first time here in Genesis 10. Just have a look. Because you've got mention of the Egyptians... There were bad guys in scripture. You got mention, of course, of the Babylonians. You get much worse than that. You've got the Philistines. You've got the Assyrians. Now think about it. And imagine you're one of the, the people of Israel when Moses first reads this out to you. You know, this is a sort of a who's who of the most immoral and wicked and godless enemies. So many of the enemies of God are here. Same thing about the Hamites. Notice also the mention of a specific enemy of God. Now, did you see that when I read through it? You know, the list of Hamites is, is, is longer than the Japhites. Much longer. And it's longer... Because it goes into a lot of detail about this guy. This really kind of intriguing figure that we've got in Genesis 10. A weird figure. A wicked leader, Cush's son, Nimrod. And look what we're told about Nimrod. What a guy he was. We're told he was a mighty warrior. So he's a great and powerful soldier. As Nimrod, we're also told that this expression it sort of grew up about him, the expression that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now what do you think, folks? Is that a good thing? A mighty hunter before the Lord? I'll tell you, it's not a good thing. 
It's more a sort of comment on Nimrod's flagrant disobedience. Nimrod was a guy who openly, before the Lord, was a mighty hunter, and most probably a mighty hunter of men. And then we're told he was a city builder as well, that he was the one responsible for the building of wicked cities like Nineveh, that Nimrod was the one behind the building of Babylon. So you get it, don't you? These Hamites, what a picture of wickedness. Enemy after enemy, groups of enemies, but a particular focus on one evil figure. Now, what are we going to do with that? How do we unpick that? How do we apply it? Well, folks, the first thing we've got to see is that because groups of opposition existed in the earliest of times, that so too you and I should expect groups of opposition to Christianity in the present age. We should expect that. And it's the case, isn't it? There are groups all over the world who are enemies of Christ. There are religious groups. You know, some who are intent on the destruction of Christianity. Just think about the the, the attempted eradication of Christianity in the Middle East just now. Just think about the 85 or so Christians killed in, in Pakistan in the past week. But there's also groups who oppose Christianity in this country too. Groups within the church. Those who profess Christ but don't preach him. And those outside the church, those who are intent on obliterating biblical values. Folks, we look around and we see no shortage of groups of opposition. But consider this. Consider that not only are there groups of opposition. Consider that we must also be conscious that just like in Genesis 10, behind those groups stands one solitary figure. And like Nimrod, that figure is a hunter of men. He is a mighty hunter. He is one who is defined by his rebellion and he is the one who has built the wicked city of Babylon. Our real enemy is the evil one, the one who orchestrates, the one who directs all of the opposition to the gospel. So I'll ask you a question this morning. Think about that statistic earlier on about the young people. How should we respond to this opposition? How do we respond? You know, 
faced with the evil one, faced with these groups of opposition, how do you respond? Should there be worry in your heart as a Christian? Should you fear? Well, I'll tell you, look at Genesis 10 and look what we see. We see the world as one before the Lord. We see that even before these guys, before these nations that rose up in rebellion, before they, they rose up, rised up, rose up in tyranny, God knew all about them. God knew their names. God had these enemies listed. So yes, there's going to be opposition. And yes, we might even be persecuted in the years to come. But one thing is for sure. Our Lord is in control of all of that. He knows our enemies. And listen to this. You see that one solitary figure? He has already been defeated. Christ is risen from the dead. And in Christ... Even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. In Christ, when you are faced with the fiercest opposition to your faith, there is no reason to fear. So the second thing we see is the evil of the earth before God. Okay, so last week, if you were here last week, you remember that because... Uh, we have sort of uh, a language barrier in the congregation in some ways. You know, because there's a lot of people who uh, don't have English as their first language that, uh, that I say that we don't have technical theological terms in our sermon headings. And I sort of made a big deal about that and I was sort of priding myself in that. And then last week, I broke that rule badly. And guess what? Uh, I am going to break that rule again uh, just now. Because just as we conclude, in just a few words, let's consider here, we've seen the entirety of the earth, the evil of the earth. Consider the elect of the earth before God here. Think about that. The elect of the earth. Alan, we've looked at the Japhites. We've looked at the Hamites. Where are we going next? We're looking at the Semites, the third list. Let's notice two things about it. One, it will sound dodgy. It's not meant to be. The first thing we have to see here. Look, the lists are the wrong way around. Did you see that? The lists in chapter 10 are the wrong way around. I mean, look at verse 1. Verse 1 gives the names in the normal order, the correct order, the, the, the order according to age. It says this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But that's not the way the chapter deals with the names, is it? The list, the lists are inverted. They're turned on their heads. It's Japhites, Hamites, Semites. Why? Well, the lists have been arranged like that because this chapter is building up to a climax. 
what you've got here in chapter 10 is this huge, gigantic, scriptural crescendo. That's what you've got. What we've got, Calvin says about it, he says that the line of Shem has been left to the end because there is going to be, this is what he says, there is going to be a special dignity assigned and accorded these people, the line of Shem. So that's the first thing, the less of the wrong way around. Second thing, this is what we need to see. There is a name here out of place. There is a name out of place. And I grant you, it's not easy to spot that in amongst the 70. You see, in the previous lists, Japhites, Hamites, we've got a formula. Because what it starts with is the name of whichever son of Noah we're concerned with, whether it's Japheth or Ham. And then the formula goes into the next immediate descendants. And then the same again and the same again. It's a formula and it's a pattern. Now, that's not the same with the Semites. See, look at how that list starts. I would ask you to look at the end of verse 21. If your Bibles are open, it says... Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. Now, why mention Eber? Eber was not one of these immediate descendants of Shem. He doesn't deserve, if you like, to be there. Why is he mentioned? Well, friends, we, we, we see why Eber's given this special status in this list. When we see what word is derived from his name. Because it's from the name Eber that the original word Hebrew comes from. Do you see what we're being told? We're being told that from this line, from the line of Shem, emerge the Hebrews. From this line come the chosen people, the people of God. And what you and I need to see from that is the incredible grace of God that this last part of the chapter points to. The grace of God. Because you see, God here chooses a people. He chose a people for himself. Now these people didn't deserve to be chosen. They were as wicked and and sinful as the Hamites or the Japhites. But God chooses them nonetheless. And I'll tell you this. That is the key that unlocks religion. That's the key that unlocks the message of the Bible. That is the key that opens the door to a new relationship with God. God chooses people. Do you understand? It means that there is nothing that you can do to warrant and earn your salvation. 
It means that God never, ever, ever will choose you if you are devout. He will never choose you because of your religiosity. That will never, ever happen. That is the message of the Bible. Because what we see here is that with God, favour is not earned. With God, favour is received. God chose a people. He chose a people for himself. And I'm going to end with this. How is that even possible? You know, come on, how is it possible? How can a holy God choose sinful people like us? Well, it's possible because this chapter isn't finished. It's possible because the line of Shem does not end here. I'll read you something. I'll read you the words of Luke chapter 3. It says there that Jesus Christ was the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, that Jesus Christ is the son of Shem. Folks, do you see it? The genealogy moves forward and it moves forward to Jesus Christ, the one who has died for sin. And it is only through trusting and believing in him for the forgiveness of your sin that you will ever experience favour. That you will ever experience grace. That you will ever experience salvation. Friends, one day, one day soon, all people will bow. And they will bow to that descendant of Shem. One day, every knee in heaven and on earth, they will bow. And once again, on that day, Just like here in Genesis chapter 10, the world will be one before the Lord. Let's pray.